This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with parenting expert Allison Schaefer. Allison has a master's in counseling from the Adler School of Chicago and is known for her firm but friendly democratic style of parenting with practical solutions. She's the author of three best-selling books, Breaking the Good Mom Myth, Honey, I Wrecked the Kids, and Ain't Misbehavin'. Allison hosts a podcast called Parenting the Adlerian Way and runs a busy counseling practice in Toronto, Canada, where she shares her principles, rules, and tools for raising cooperative and resilient kids. Allison, welcome to the Life Speak podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. We hear this word so much lately, resilient. What does it mean to be a resilient kid? It's really the idea that life is going to knock us down, that it's part of the reality that there will be struggles and suffering that's unavoidable. But we're looking at the difference between the person who gets knocked down by the blows of life and stays down and suffers because of it, mental health issues, functioning issues, versus those people who can pick themselves up, um, rally, overcome, and in fact, even even thrive in the recovery, uh, because it can also lead to growth opportunities when we pick ourselves up and learn from from our dark dark spots in our lives. And thankfully, that capacity is something that is not hardwired in our DNA. It's a, it's a life skill that we learn. And uh, so it's, it's teachable. These past 18 months, parents have been dealing with the biggest challenge this generation has, has ever faced, the global pandemic. Kids of all ages were home from school for months at a time. Parents have been tearing their hair out in despair. We're all worried about our children's mental health, not to mention our own. What have you been hearing from your own clients over the past 18 months? Well, we almost predicted people in, in the mental health field really did predict that if you're going to have a pandemic and have the change in the societal structures that we saw, that the second pandemic or epidemic, I guess you would say, is going to be a sweeping mental health crisis. And we did see that. We, you know, uh, Kids Help Phone saw an increase in calls to their service by 300 fold increase in the first month of the pandemics at Kids Hospital said that they uh, were anticipating an increase in their emergency psychiatric intake, but they weren't expecting it to be so young and so so severe. So it really has been um, challenging for everybody. In in my practice, uh, I've seen uh, a lot of teenagers. They seem to be particularly going through particularly uh, in that developmental phase of life. Adolescence is hard anyways. Mental health issues tend to crop up in adolescence anyway. So there's a vulnerability for that population. And so I really saw a lot of, of crisis uh, with, with teenagers. And and marriages too, you know, that it's important for us to remember that we're not really meant to live in nuclear families. We glorify that, you know, it was really like a big 50s thing that, you know, we should all be so happy that we're all home together. But we need space from each other too. We need the buffers of the grannies and the aunties and the coaches and the teachers so that if you have a bad morning and, you know, you're yelling at each other because you're late for work or someone didn't put their cereal bowl in the sink, you might start off with a stinky morning, but everyone goes off and so your coworkers make you laugh and your teacher tells you your essay is good and you kind of recover from it, you know, but when it's just picking on your sister and your dad's down your throat and your mom says, sit up and, you know, turn your camera on for classes. It's just been kind of constant crisis. So all the relationships in the family have been fraught with tension. Now we're going to come back to this a little bit more, but I, I want to find out from you, how did you get started as a parenting expert and, and why has this been such a passion for you? 
So I have a a bit of an interesting backstory in that um, I'm the third generation in my family to be a parent educator. Uh, My grandmother and my father uh, founded the um, Alfred Adler Institute here, um, which was a training institute because they were uh, friends, colleagues, um, professional uh, acquaintances with a gentleman named Dr. Rudolf Dreikers, who wrote Children the Challenge, which was still considered by the Library of Congress to be one of the most influential parenting books of the century. And uh, so Dr. Rudolf Dreikers was a colleague with with Alfred Adler, and so I'm an Adlerian based on Alfred Adler's um, turn-of-the-century philosophy for, for living and psychology. My parents knew Rudolf Drakers, who was trying to bring the Adlerian philosophy to Canada and to set up training institutions and to bring it to schools and to host public speaking and train doctors and nurses and teachers. And so my parents were very involved with that work. And so um, so I was raised in a family with these parent educators and my parents teaching parenting classes in the living room and uh, even in the all- living room. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was, you know, they had a class, they had a class set of, um, of children, the challenge books that, that parents would read and I would babysit. So I thought it was great because I made money off these parenting classes and they did some lay counseling and I would again babysit. And then my parents would, I thought I was very mature. They would call me in and they would say, tell, tell us how you saw the children interacting when the parents weren't there. And I would give my like report on the kids. Um, really, they were just trying to show to the parents when you're not there, your kids get along. <laughs> that was really the big takeaway. So I could testify to the fact that they got along really great in the playroom while their parents were doing counseling or doing their class. And so all of that, you know, was just interesting. I, I mean, I, I, I thought our family was strange. I was the only kid on my block that that had to do chores, and which I thought were awful. And my mom made us make our own lunches and all my friends had their lunches made for them. So I kind of had a, a woe is me <laughs> kind of <laughs> kind of an attitude but everybody wanted to hang out at my house because you could make cookies so long as you cleaned up after yourself and we were allowed to use the stove and my friends used to come over and they loved using the vacuum so I'm like go vacuum do my chores I love it and um but I I went to school for for, I have a bachelor of science um in kinesiology that was my my degree and honestly I was on a very different trajectory not thinking about family life and relationships at all and then had my first child, you know, I, again, didn't really think about parenting, you know, in the first year because it was a lot about cracked nipples and sleep training. And like, I didn't really know it was that stuff. But at, at, at about 16 months, my daughter did something and I had that first wave where I went, oh my gosh, she is doing that on purpose to bug me. That is misbehavior. That is not developmental. That is with intention. And then I thought, gosh, I've got to figure out how to, how to do discipline now. I haven't figured that out yet. And all I could think of was how did my parents do it? And I couldn't really remember that age. I, I remembered five and 10 and, but not, not, you know, 16 months. And so I went and read children, the challenge, the book that they had been teaching out of all these years, you know, and, and I, it was like, my mind exploded. It explained my childhood. It explained why we did chores. It explained, it was like, and I thought everybody needs to know this. This is like sitting on the, on the cure to cancer and not telling people it's selfish to not share this. You know, if you can make someone else's life better by knowing this. And so I went back to school. I went back to the Adler school that the, the, um, Toronto location that my grandparents and my dad had had founded that had morphed into an accrediting university and started teaching parenting classes and and doing counseling and speaking and writing books. And it just rolled from there. It's been amazing. What is the Adlerian way of parenting? 
I think the best way for parents to understand it, you know, in a nutshell is it's a version of a positive discipline style of parenting. So it's non-punitive, non-reward based, building on children's strengths, using education like consequences and um, problem solving as the sort of key. There's many discipline tools, um, but um And then I would say we sort of have some main constructs, like we say, you know, children who feel good, do good. Children who feel bad, do bad. So when a child is misbehaving, uh, we don't really see it as like a character flaw. We see it as it's a child who's being creative, trying to find a solution to a problem. And they've just stumbled on something that's effective, but it's not pro-social. And so we're always looking at the usefulness. So we call it teleology. It's the usefulness of the child's um, behavior that we're interested in. And that each of us has uh, a private logic that we that we come into the world with um, a, an underdeveloped brain and we have to figure out a lot of operating rules for life. And we come to some erroneous conclusions. People would understand this as in cognitive, uh, you know, if you take CBT or something, you, you work a lot with cognitions and there's a very cognitive piece to Adlerian psychology that, you know, we have beliefs and sometimes they're wrong, but we live as if they are our truth, you know. So if you're a kid and you think nobody loves me, then you're going to see how the child goes about creating a world that actually confirms that mistaken belief so it's it's pretty it goes pretty deep I, I think it's the one thing that i appreciate about it is that we always look at we have to understand the, the behavior before we can change the behavior and i find a lot of other parenting resources might have positive discipline but unless you understand that deeper piece um you're you're kind of just putting band-aids on symptoms you're not really going to get the big sea change um you know in a child's life or a real redirection in their in in the way that they strive that you would so it's a very robust psychology for sure so adler was sounds like he was very much ahead of his time he sure was um so it was alfred adler sigmund freud and carl jung all three of them were intellectual sparring partners as we moved psychology into the four and because he was um a jewish physician during world war 1 and 2 he was particularly struck by concepts of social equality that we can't, con- you know, this, this you know, Aryans being superior to Jews. And now we can think about the rest of society, the Hutus over the Tutsis or the Israels versus the Palestinians or the Black Lives Matter. I mean, there is the residential children that we just are in the news here in Canada. There's so many examples in our larger world that say, you know, why is it that we want to rule over one another? Why, why can't we appreciate our difference and live with pluralism and, and not say someone is better than another person to just live as social equals cooperatively? And that was really, that's really the, his guiding principle. And then he shows us how to do that and how to be cooperative in your marriage, how to be cooperative in raising your kids, how to raise cooperative kids. And um, so, well, we have certainly learned a lot more, um, you know, through functional MRIs and um, research on child development and whatnot. There is nothing that has negated what he put forth all those years ago. So far, everything we've learned in research has confirmed what he hypothesized, which is pretty amazing. He was quite a thinker. Now, you've been practicing for over 20 years. What have you seen has changed in parenting styles over this time? I I think that, um, that one of the biggest modern issues. We're, we're, we're far more fearful. We're fearful parents, fearful that our kids are somehow 
not going to have what it takes to make it. That there's a real cultural message that says, unless your kid is in the top deviation of, of academic marks, if their resume doesn't have extracurriculars, if they don't have this, whatever, that somehow there's a scarcity mentality that there just isn't going to be a role for their child in the workplace. And so from the youngest of ages, this pressure to achieve and the fear of, of what happens if you don't is really twisting our parenting. And I think- How, how is it twisting it? What are you uh, seeing there? Well, so again, just parents being overly involved and overly overly emphasizing um, achievement rather than the, the you know soft skills, the relationships and the being a good person and being a kind person and character development and you know and technology has really exploded you know in the tw- in the twenty years and parents are not keeping up with technology and how it impacts parenting and how it impacts our children, how it impacts every aspect of our life. If you think about, well, thank goodness, in good ways and bad ways, but we wouldn't have been able to have had online schooling. We wouldn't be doing this Zoom interview if we didn't have technology. I mean, there's lots of good uses, but parents are really stymied at trying to stay on top of, you know, the the issues that come to counseling now are, you know, my kid is gaming constantly, or, you know, I found my daughter posting inappropriate pictures. You know, she's only 14 and she's on TikTok and she's showing these booty shots and, and parents just don't know you know, what what to do with it. And there's also just the whole social overlay where kids bully in a different way, you know, ghosting people is a form of bullying. And um, there's nuances that if if parents aren't in that world, they, they're not aware how absolutely stressful it is for our teenagers. So it's in, in those regards, I think we're, we're in a lag on knowing what to do. And it's causing a problem for parents. We could spend hours and hours with me asking you commonly asked questions about parenting and you answering them, which is so much of of the work that you do, especially on social media. But I, I thought we would just go maybe to some some of the more common challenges that parents are facing at the the various stages of of childhood. I think so many parents just want to know what are we doing wrong. And how do we fix it? <laughs> do you want to start maybe just talking at preschool, let's say? Sure. You know, because you started with the the concept of uh, resiliency, I, I want to go back to that about the, the child makes their basic formulation of the characteristic way that they're going to go through life. You know, you, you might call that their rules of operating their personality by about the age of five. We call it lifestyle. Your lifestyle and your private logic is, is pretty much established by five. So those early years, those pre, preschool years are really, really important. And the things that are important from a protective factor, we really want to have a child have the greatest likelihood of having some very protective beliefs. And one of those protective beliefs is that I belong you know, because we're social creatures. So, so I would say helping our kids have those social relationships, you know, feeling close relationships with their siblings or teachers, close relationships in the family. That's really, really, that one is just huge. The feeling I belong, that I'm significant in my family, that I, that I have, you know, worth and value. And another one is that I'm capable, that I can handle life. So independence and autonomy. Parents are not good at this at all. Parents love to do for. It's like, uh, you know, the the love languages. To be in the service of a child makes us feel like we're parenting. So, and also because we're busy. So we want to cut their toast and we want to, we don't want them to dress themselves because they'll do it wrong and we don't want them to look bad at school. So, so we dress them and we cut their hair and we brush their, you know. So we get so into doing for 
that our kids don't develop skills and autonomy and they don't learn this this fundamental belief that I can manage me, that I'm a learner and I can figure things out and I can count on me to figure life out. And that belief happens very early. And so we end up raising a lot of kids who are dependent on other people or have sort of a victim mentality. And this is not a good resilience standpoint to, to know that you count. And then the last one is, is to have the courage to make mistakes, you know, to be able to, if you're going to learn skills and develop mastery, then you've got to be able to realize that if you don't cut your toast perfectly the first time, that that's okay. I'm just, I'm a learner. I'm figuring it out. I have the, the courage to be imperfect. And um, I think because parents have very high standards for themselves and they don't, they're afraid of mistakes. They make their kids, mistake phobic and we have a real surge in anxiety in in kids today because i think there's so much around achievement and judgment and correction that uh, it's it's not a safe environment to be a learner in our homes i've heard you say that you know there's been a big challenge with kids going off to 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 college and to university and not being able to to function and you saying that you know you can't start teaching your kids to do things for themselves when they're 17 and they're about to leave for for college or university, that it's almost too late. So can you talk a bit about that? Well, I, I want parents to know it's never too late. Um, we, we can always catch up, but for sure it's going to come with anxiety and they're not very interested in being in the kitchen with you, learning to cook and learning to do laundry and learning how to open a bank account and write a check and all these other little micro skills. You know, they want to be studying and hanging out with their friends. So it's just a lot of living to squeeze into a small amount of time. So instead, I think it's more respectful. And this again goes back to like a, a core piece of, of in Adlerian psychology if we're living in mutually respectful relationships, not superior, inferior, slave, tyrant type relationships, if we're in mutually respectful, socially equal relationships, it's from a place of respect that we that we want to train our kids to be competent and then never do for a child what a child can do for themselves. And so it's respectful to teach a child how to eat with, you know, cutlery so that they can get their own food in their mouth and then let them manage that on their own. To do for is... I, in my view and in Adlerian view, that's a, that's disrespecting somebody. And so starting for from the very youngest of age to constantly be on the lookout for what do they take an interest in and where are they developmentally on a trajectory where if I spend some time, could I teach them how to tie their shoes? If I spend some time, could I teach them how to set an alarm clock? If I spent some time, could I show them how to handle this grooming? And And the more that they have these opportunities of being autonomous, and managing their own life, that's really where their self-esteem grows from. So so we have to just be mindful of looking for the opportunities and then putting in the time. Honestly, parents will say, oh, I don't, they're time strapped. And I know that. But what I will tell you is that it might take you, I don't know, maybe a month to teach one of your kids how to get their lunches together. If you look at all the micro skills of where do we keep the saran wrap? And if you put the yogurt in like that, it's going to explode in your knapsack. Like all, you know, think of all the things that you might need to teach a kid about making a lunch. So maybe it takes a month of mornings or evenings doing that. But then they make their own lunches for the rest of their middle school, high school life. That just Look at how much time you just got back, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I promise you. And, you know, a child who's competent and managing themselves, um, they're not going to be needy, but they'll be less demanding on you. So pay attention, parents. If you've got a kid who's criticizing you, you didn't put carrot sticks. I don't like what you put in my lunch. Why did you forget my hockey bag? These are all telltale signs that these children need to be looking after themselves because they're blaming you 
for mistakes that are things that are actually the child's own responsibility. So you end up becoming a target of their criticism. So you can st- step out of that role too. Um, let's move to to tweens, that awkward stage between school age and and teen years. What can parents be doing to support their kids to be more resilient and independent at that age? Well, I think it's important for parents to know that early adolescence, the tween years, that is the most reported miserable time of parenting. <laughs> so sorry, folks. Oh, really? Interesting. Yes. Not 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 teenage years. No. Again, it's because in our minds, we think we're not going to have to face these issues until our kids are in high school. So we're not expecting to have to deal with a nine-year-old who's, you know, whatever, swearing or a 13-year-old who's drunk and uh, all these issues that we just can't believe are coming up so soon. And we still infantilize and think that our kids are are quite young and we just we can't keep pace with their exploding development. And I think that's really the piece, you know, if I'm giving parenting advice for that age group is to realize that your children are children of the universe. They are their own unique snowflakes. They come from you, as Cahill Gibran says, but they are not you. And we have to stand back in the wonderment as they start to develop themselves. Are they going to be the final version? I mean, I don't know what your adolescence was like, but I look back at mine. You know, I now look like a very conservative professional woman with multiple degrees. But if you would have looked at me in high school, I was a punk rocker. I had a nightclub. I mean, you know, uh, (laughs) we, we all try on personas, you know, and we all check out different friend groups and we're all trying to figure out our identity. And if parents can just say they're not, you don't know how they're, where they're going to land at the other end of this. This is, you know, so, so to just stand in the wonder of watching your child and send that reassuring belief that whoever they land, however it comes out, that you are on this journey, that you love them unconditionally and and stand in the wonderment of it instead of the intensity of it. We need to really lighten, lighten up. <laughs> Let's talk about teens. Um, you know, I think parents really have a hard time letting go at that age. There's so much more independence. When can we let them drive? When can we let them, you know, go out and, and you know, stay out later? What are some of the challenges that parents need to, to be thinking about there? Uh, so, so I'm going to go back to the mental health thing because kids, even though we're trying to show them this unconditional love and trying to keep the relationship tight, and that's actually really important to to realize that um, the teens that come to my practice will say like, you know, yeah, I have a relationship with my parents, but they don't know, they don't know who I am. They don't know my problems. They don't see me. They, so we, we have to really be very, very good listeners um, so that our kids can really put their inside stuff out to us. And, and sometimes when we hit the teenage years are because our teens want us to hold them in high regard. They don't want to share their problems because they're afraid that we're going to think less of them. Don't feel badly if your child wants another confidant other than you, but it's important that they have someone uh, that's an adult, not necessarily a trained adult. Like, yes, give them the kids help phone line so they can text or, you know, give them a mental health professional's name or whatever. But I mean, sometimes it's an uncle or a special aunt or a teacher or coach or someone that someone that's an adult, because if it's just peer to peer information for how, you know, kids are going to be wildly misguided. And so um, Gabor Mate has written books on this quiet isolation and suffering that our teens live in 
even before we had the pandemic, let alone during the pandemic, because they don't have a world of mentoring adults around them. They live in a peer to peer world and it's not sufficient. And um, and so we we need to forget this notion of, oh, you know, they want to be with their peers more than their parents or, um, you know, they have to cut the apron strings. So we t- we tend to let our kids drift. And they don't exactly fight for our time and attention. In fact, they can rebuke us, but we have to push past that and stay in their lives. You need to stay on the journey. And how do you do that? How do you how do you get your children to to speak to you? How do you understand what the challenges are that they're going through when they won't speak to you? Yeah. So then I would say the number one shift that that needs to happen or for parents to make an adjustment in their parenting style for this phase of life is to realize that they can no longer use the command and control style um, that tends to rear its ugly head when we get fearful, you know, like because we're worried that they're going to, you know, text while they're driving or we're worried they're going to go to the party and drink or whatever. They're going to vape and get addicted. Um, We have so many fears. And when we get fearful, we get controlling. No way or my dead body, you're not going. Um, and because so, I said so. Because <laughs> I said so. Yeah. And you're not you're not managing your homework. So I'm going to set up a homework schedule and I'm going to hire the tutor. And um, so we take over. We take over. We get scared and we, and we take over. And control, they will just be allergic to at that phase of life. So what I have to work in my practice is to understand that you actually still have something that is even more powerful. And that is to use the power of influence in your relationship. So if you're, if your relationship is close and you're not controlling your kids, if the relationship is close, then because teens will choose on their own who they're willing to be influenced by, whether that is Joe Rogan or whether it's your dad, they will pick who they're going to be influenced by. So you got, you got to be in the lineup of people that they go, you know what? My dad's actually a pretty cool guy. I actually like my dad. I like his values. I like how he treats me. I, you know, I, I want to, I want to, you know, he can bend my ear so that when we do say, listen, I'm really worried about your marks. You know, um, I know you've got big dreams for yourself after high school. And, uh, you know, I just would really um, hate for you to be disappointed uh, that you missed out on some opportunities. So if we can influence, not control, and parents just think that's too wishy-washy woo-woo, but I'm telling you, it works. It's your number one parenting tool. Is is so uh, so we have to really put the fear aside and give them some agency. But then speak speak in a in a leadership kind of way that allows the child to be a stakeholder in their life, but that we can have these sort of Socratic conversations. You know, well, have you thought about this? And have you you know let them use their brain, but you can kind of coach them through problem solving. Now, your daughters are grown up now. I think they're in their 20s, late 20s. Yes. Oh, my yeah. God, I know they're getting so. Yes, I have grown. They're wonderful. They're wonderful. I just, you know, I just can't believe how much time has passed. But yes, they're like 26 and 27 now. How do you look back at your own parenting? <laughs> um, well, Any regrets? I mean, no. Well, I mean, I, you know, I mean, we all have regrets. There's no two ways about it. You know, and both of my kids because we come from a counseling positive family, both my kids went for counseling and I thought that was amazing. I I love that they have normalized the idea that when you need help and support, you go get help and support, which was great. They needed to speak to people about what was going on in, in our family. You know, I, I feel badly. I've had a lot, I carried a lot of guilt for, for years about the fact that um, my partner and I divorced while my kids were going into high school. Uh, but I've since asked them, I said, what could we have done differently? You know, I counsel people through divorce all the time and, and 
both my kids said, no, you know what? I don't think you could have done it any differently. I think that was that was great, actually. It's no no kid wants their parent to divorce. But I think, you know, with time, they, they came to understand that. Um, you know, I was busy. I was starting. I, I wanted my kids to see me busy. If I didn't keep myself busy, I would have been the overinvested mom. I would. I know my personality. I'm so overdriven that I would have put my kids under a microscope and I, I would have just been so in their life and so enmeshed. So I kept myself busy, you know, going back to school to get my master's degree and then starting my own business. And at one point I even had two businesses. And so I think I regret that I, that while I was trying to put this forward facing, you know, feminist women work, women go to school, you know, um, I, you know, I, I may, I may have a missed out on some opportunities to just slow down and be present with them. And I think I raised kids that have very high standards and I didn't not imposed, not imposed on them from me, but I think I put the bar pretty high, (laughs) just so, you know, you know, and, and as did their dad, we're both, um, we're both very high achieving parents and, um, I don't know. What do you do? Lower your own bar so that your kids don't end up having stress around that. I mean, it's a real conundrum, right? You mentioned that you're, you know, your, your kids had some counseling at one point. When do you think that parents should be seeking the help of a a professional, whether that's a counselor for their own children, or maybe, um, you know, a parenting uh, expert such as yourself, when should they be doing that? The way I like to to explain it to people and, and to teens in my practice too, is, you know, if you have a car, you take it to get your oil filter changed and the oil changes with the seasons and you you don't wait until it's a broken down jalopy before you take it in to the mechanic. So just the same way that you see your, your dentist for dental checkups and your doctor for your annual checkup, whatever, you know, to have a mental health practitioner there where, where when you're going through any kind of major decisions or change or whatever to, to do a little check-in is, is just great. It doesn't need to be a problem that passes a criteria whereby you're literally symptomatic. Suffering is suffering. You know, you can say, I deserve to be happier than this. This doesn't need to be a burden for me. So I think especially because it can take a while to find a professional that your kids um, actually gel with, you know, it's, it, it's very much about the relationship. Obviously I love the Adlerian philosophy, but research shows that it's really the relationship that the client has with their practitioner at the end of session four. That's the greatest predictor for positive outcomes, not whether it's art therapy, play therapy, CBT, you know, so it's all about the relationship and it might take you a while to find somebody that gels, you know, with your kids. So I think it's a smart thing uh, to do whenever you see somebody struggling. And a lot of people do there. It's often, you know, a, a teacher might say, Hey, you know what, we've got some concerns about your child. We're seeing this or that. And then often we'll go to the doctor and say, you know, the teacher mentioned this and we're wondering about that. And usually from the doctor, then they say, yeah, you could talk to this person. So that's a common sort of line of, of ways that um, that things go. But just to be able to say, you, don't, you know, there's people who know how to, to help you through this challenging time. So that could be a teenager who's having a breakup with a boyfriend or um, debating about, you know, which way to go with courses in school. It could be struggling with a poor relationship with a parent, any of those things. But um, teenagers have a lot of peer, peer relationships, a lot of low self-esteem. Uh, they're they're so hard on themselves. They their their feeling of likability and lovability really plummets in in adolescence, and they really need those support people in place. So you know, yeah, don't don't wait until we start seeing cutting and suicidality. You know, come in when you start seeing them being blue. Parents are are you know speaking of teens being hard on themselves. I think parents, especially parents of younger children, are incredibly hard on themselves. What do you think parents need to be maybe less hard on themselves about? 
even though I said resiliency is a skill and we have to train kids and teach kids, you know, I think we really need to believe that the, the nature of the species is we were wired to survive. I mean, you know, we, we we can manage. And so you you are not going to break the primary bond because your kid cried because, you know, I I, know, I I remember whacking my daughter's head into the door frame as I was holding her in my arms, walking into the kitchen, <laughs> and I I misjudged where the door frame was. And we've cracked. all done that, I think. you know. Or you know, I remember putting my daughter on the top of the slide the very first time she was in a snowsuit and we went to the park in the winter, and I didn't realize the coefficient of friction is very different in a snowsuit, <laughs> and, and and I catapulted her off the slide. Um, you know, so I've I've had those like, oh my gosh, what kind of a parent am I? You you know, moments, what have I done? But I think we're, you know, we're worried that if they cry or they're disappointed or they didn't get the teacher they wanted or their friend, we're so worried about having them having negative emotions and certainly negative emotions about us when we say, no, you can't have a candy bar for breakfast. And no, you can't have a, you know, I just bought you a book yesterday. You don't get a book today. We're so afraid to set limits and boundaries. So we're so afraid of their disappointment or their upset. You know, we're, we're afraid of emotions. We're very afraid of upsetting them. That's how you set boundaries. <laughs> and uh, and we can't be afraid of that. And your children are not going to not love you or have, uh, you know, a primary break in the attachment because you set limits and boundaries. So I, I think from that perspective, every parent could take a deep breath, um, have faith, have faith that a kid needs containment, feels safer with containment. And, uh, and that's a role we provide, even if it means that they're going to have a little upset around it. Things are starting to to open up. Uh, you know, kids are starting to go back to some in person learning and summer camps, and things are are opening up with the, with vaccines. What's making you feel hopeful right now during these uncertain times? I'm speaking at a conference in October, and that looks like that's going ahead. So that feels very hopeful to me. You know, I think this this big. I've got people that are going back to summer camps. I those things, those things that are just they're small but huge in the sense that they just resemble normalcy. All of those things make me very uh, hopeful. I think that the, the the one piece that I just say as sort of a cautionary tale is we still have not got everybody vaccinated and we do still have variants and we are going to come back indoors in the fall. And so, um, you know, I, I think we do have to play it really safe right now, play the long, slow game instead of getting too excited and having to to go back to another round of, of shutdowns. I think that's people are just low and slow people. Let's go low and slow. <laughs> In terms of parents moving into this phase with their kids, is is there any advice that you can give to, to parents who are parenting children who are, you know, facing all of this uncertainty and things are open and then they're closed and then they're open and then they're closed? Yeah, well, I would say... Um... I think the kids, you know, with this, the goal for the summer is to just focus on mental health and kids need to have some fun and they need to get back to some, some, some normalcy for sure. Uh, and I think that will create a greater capacity for if we have to kind of roll through some closures again in the fall. But I would say capitalize on this summer for just fun and leisure and reconnecting. Um, you know, if siblings have been fighting, can they get some time apart? Can you have one sibling go to grandma's house and the other sibling go to auntie's and hang out with different 
different cousins or something. <laughs> and great if you can have if you want to have family time and everyone's getting along, that's great. I mean, don't, I, I, you know, that's that's wonderful. But I think for a lot of people that are exhausted, they they really just want you know certainly moms who have taken a big um, lion's share of this. Sorry to be gender specific, dads. Not to say that you're not helping, but we, we still do live in a more traditional framework in the sense that the that the worry and the mechanical day in and day out does still tend to fall to women. And we lost 4.2 million women left the workforce because they tend to be lower paid and they had to look after kids. I mean, it's it's going to take us a long time to recover from from that. So so women have been real moms have been real heroes here, and I think they're burnt and they they really need to recover. So. So if we can find a way for us to not be in in the role of having to manage the household, manage the kids, manage whatever, moms need a big holiday. We needed to put Mother's Day in July. <laughs> your podcast is called Parenting the Adlerian Way, and um, you can find that in all the places that you find your favorite podcasts. People can find out more about you on your website, alisonshafer.com. Allison, thank you so much for speaking to me today. My pleasure. I really appreciate the time to share Adlerian psychology with your listeners. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast. A production of the Sound Off Media Company.